You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. In chapter 3, if you remember, we saw that God shows up. God shows up for the first time in the book, really, and uh, he shows up in the burning bush, the bush that isn't burning. He speaks to now an 80-year-old Moses, and he says to him that he's calling him to go uh, to Pharaoh, back to Egypt from where he's come, from where he escaped, and to demand that Pharaoh let his people go. And uh, we said that in, in response to, to, to Moses' own anxiety about doing that, remember he says, who am I that I should go and speak to Pharaoh? In response to, to, to Moses saying that, and indeed in response to us saying that to God, who am I to share the gospel with my friends? In both cases, in Exodus 3 and in Matthew 28, God says, what does he say? I will be with you. I will be with you. To Moses, when you go and speak to Pharaoh, I will be with you. To us, when you go and speak to your neighbours, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this cool thing happened this last week. I was hanging out with, um, with my boy, Judah, and uh, he's three years old. We hang out a lot, and I was chatting to him about the fact that he's going to have his tonsils taken out uh, very soon, God willing. And, um, and, and here's the thing about our parenting. Uh, this is what we do. This, you don't have to do this. But we, we've told our kids, whenever they ask us anything, we will be completely honest with them. And so we, we always tell them the truth. And that applies to December 25th, right? And, and everything else. And, um, and, so, uh, and the reason we do that is just because we want them to trust us when we tell them the truth. So we want them, when we tell them about Jesus, to know that this isn't another tooth fairy thing, all right? So we're totally honest, and, um, and, and, and so I was telling him about what's going to happen when he has his tonsils out, and, um, and he was getting a bit anxious about it, and uh, he, um, <laughs> he said to me, um, after the doctor takes out my tonsils, will I be able to run super-duper fast? I can't do the lisp like he does, but I was like, yeah, because he probably will be able to run super duper fast when he has his first full night's sleep in his life, right? Um, and so, um, and then he said, oh, um, will they take my food out? Like, no, buddy, they'll leave the food in there. And then he said, he looked at me and still pretty anxious and he said, are you coming too? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be there too. And his whole countenance changed, right? Like, ah, I, take, I can relax now. Daddy, daddy's coming too. And that's exactly what Moses is doing here. So it's exactly what God is doing with Moses here. The great I am will be with you. It's exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples and by extension with us in the Great Commission. Your father will be with you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of the manifest power of the Trinity is with you as you open your mouth to share the gospel as you step out in obedience. And so that's the context where we come to in chapter 4, but just in the same way that since last week, you know, you left here going, yeah, God will be with me, and then by Tuesday morning, you're like freaking out again, a quivering, cowardly mess. Um, And just like between my conversation with Judah on Wednesday and the actual surgery, he's going to experience anxiety again about having the surgery. And, And just in that same way, Moses, even as he stands before the burning bush, has his own misgivings. 
And he has three objections that we're going to look at this morning, all right? So three objections as to why he shouldn't be the one that God sends to Egypt, all right? Starting at verse 1 of chapter 4, make sure you have your Bible open. We're just going to walk through this together. So Moses answers God, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you. Now, here's what you need to know. We're going to look at these three different objections and then God's response to them. What you need to know is that there, there is something that, a unifying thing that's driving his objections, his misgivings, his anxiety. And the thing that's driving him, I think, is a focus on self. All of his anxiety is coming from this great focus on himself, his inadequacy, his past, his foibles, right? A focus on himself is driving his unbelief, his anxiety, and his disobedience. And this is true for all of us. You need to hear this right from the beginning. This is all I'm going to say until the end, pretty much, right? When we focus on ourselves and make ourselves the center of our faith, all that we can expect to happen is anxiety and fear and despair. Because you know yourself. If you're the great object of your faith, you're screwed. We all are. And this is what really bothers me about, and to be honest, about many churches around us, is this great emphasis on you. You being the center of the story. You being the thing around which everything else revolves. And it's this me-centered, man-centered Christianity that leads so many people to, to despair. I've sat in churches with the most incredible 30 minutes of worship, where we're just singing praises to the sovereign God of the universe, and then as soon as the guy gets up front and opens the Bible, it's suddenly all about me. Like the sermon is 10 ways to realize your potential or something. Like, when did we switch from focusing on Jesus to me, how come we sing his praises, say it's all about him, and then when we open his word, it's suddenly about me? Like, here's what you need to know very, very clearly the Bible is not about you. It's not. And attempts to force it into some kind of self help manual always gut it of its power, just guts it. So the story of David and Goliath is not about you overcoming the giants in your life. It's not. In the story of David and Goliath, you are not meant to represent David. And Goliath doesn't represent your anxieties or your financial problems or whatever. In the story of David and Goliath, if you're anyone, you are the Israelites, quivering and quavering in the corner, doubting God's power. Jesus is the true and better David. And he doesn't just slay Goliath, he crushes the head of the serpent. That's the point. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The hero of the Bible is Jesus. The, the story of the Bible points to Jesus. It's not about you, and that's okay. In fact, that's the best news in the world. Excuse the rant, but... I, I just think, man, how many churches are robbed of their power because they've become all about us and not about King Jesus? 
And it's this focus on self that I think is driving all of these objections and anxieties and misgivings that Moses has. And so God responds to Moses' misgivings by pointing him to someone greater than him, by pointing him away from himself, away from his inadequacies, and to the Lord, who is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And he, and he does this by way of three signs. So Moses has three objections. God gives him three signs and three answers to his three objections. It's very Trinitarian, all right? So here's the first one he gives. The first sign he gives him is verse 2 to 5. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand and took hold of the snake and turned it back and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. What's in your hand? It's a staff. Now what is it? Snake. Freak out, run away. Come back, pick it up by the tail. Picking snakes up by the tail is not something that we would advise you do. It's biblical, but it's not advisable, okay? And, and here's why. I, I'll tell you a story. When I was uh, 19, some of you know I went to America wasn't a believer. It was the means by which God saved me. And it was in the context of a camp over there, uh, a Salvation Army Christian camp. And um, the second day I was there, uh, I was standing with the art teacher because I was flirting with her. And um, always a sucker for the creatives, really. And I wasn't a Christian, so this was the main reason I was there. And so I was talking with her, and then everyone else was around. We were gathered outside. Um, and all of a sudden, this big black snake just came tearing straight past us, and um, the art teacher freaked out, and I, and to this day, I don't know why, I ran after it and picked it up by the tail. And, like, I grew up around snakes in Diamond Creek. That We have more tiger snakes per capita than any other place in Australia. We had a, a, a shovel by our door uh, from spring to autumn. We just run into snakes all the time, but... I'd never come across a snake that I hadn't tried to kill, and so I don't know why I ran after this. It was clearly just to show off, but I picked this thing up and then realized, I don't know what this snake is. I don't know, you know, I don't know if it's poisonous. I don't, and, and the thing about picking a snake up from the tail is, I don't know if you know about snake physiology, but when you're like this, you've all of a sudden, all you've got is fangs coming at you, right? And trying to bite you on the face, and that's exactly what happened. So all of a sudden, I had this thing by the tail, and I just started pirouetting just to, like, use the centrifugal force. Yeah, just to keep its, its head away from me. So I looked like an idiot all of a sudden, and then so I just had to keep dancing down the hill, and I eventually just threw it into the trees. It's not advisable to pick up a snake by the tail. But I think maybe... What God is doing here is forcing Moses to step out in faith. He's asking him to do something that would otherwise be scary and inadvisable and potentially dangerous, and he's asking it, him to do it to prove that he is trustworthy, to prove that he has power in this situation. And so Moses does it. He steps out in faith. 
credit to him. He, re- he responds to God with obedience, even though he was scared enough to run away at the outset. He does it, and the snake turns back to a stick. And here's what I think is going on here. I think in each of these signs, remember, remember, always remember, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, signs don't exist for themselves. What do signs do? Point you to something, right? So signs are always pointing you to a greater reality, and the signs here are pointing you to the reality that God reigns. God is the Lord who rules and reigns, okay? So here, you've got a snake, and in, in, you need to understand, in Egyptian culture, the snake represented power, it, it represented, um, it represented um, divine power. So, so on Pharaoh's crown, and Moses would have known this, right, because he's grown up in the palace, on, Moses, on um, Pharaoh's crown, you, you had the god Eurysses, and it was a, it was a an African cobra, like standing up erect with its, um, with its uh, what's that thing called? Hood. With its hood flared out, right? In a classic, like, cobra pose. And Eurysses was, was, um, was the god of, of power. And so, so Pharaoh had this god on his crown, in effect, to say, I am this god. I wield this power. And so what I think God is doing here, the Lord is doing with Moses, he's saying, you know, you know that great symbol of power that Pharaoh has, the Pharaoh that you're afraid of, that you don't want to go and confront? I, I turn that God into a stick. That's what I do. And the sign exists to let, to let Moses know, to let the Israelites know, and to let us know that our Lord reigns. That's the first Second sign, verse 6 to 7. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. We've talked about how Egypt was the most advanced civilization on the face of the earth. They had everything going for them. They had the Nile River, which provided them with all of their wealth, deposited apparently 30 feet of black soil into the desert every year that would give rise to all of their crops, fund all of their um, prosperity, their military efforts. They were just, and then on top of that, technologically advanced beyond anything we can comprehend. To this day, scholars do not know how they achieved the things they achieved. With the precision they achieved it, it's, it's a mystery. But even Egypt had no answer for leprosy. Leprosy was a disease where if it, if it, if it befell you, you were gone. There was no cure. In fact, check this out. The first effective treatment for leprosy was discovered in the 1940s. All right, so go back 3,000 years and you're in a lot of trouble. You're in a lot of trouble for the next 3,000 years, right? And so what God is doing here, again, the sign exists to demonstrate our Lord reigns. If you're in Egypt and you get this disease, even though you're in the most advanced culture on the face of the earth, you're dead. And yet God, in and out of the cloak, our Lord 
reigns. Third sign, verse 8 to 9. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it out on dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So here he's, he's, he's going after a third great symbol for the Egyptians. And you're going to see this in the plagues when we get to them. Uh, in the months to come. Each of those plagues, as we saw in the video, is a plague on one of the gods of the Egyptians. And this is God, again, just simply saying, I reign. There is no God above me. I do what I please. And so when it comes to the Nile, the Nile was known as the mother of Egypt. It provided everything she needed to prosper. Without the Nile, you don't have Egypt. Simple. And so what God is doing here is saying, look what I can do with the Nile. In the great plague that comes, he turns it all into blood, and it's a demonstration of power. He can take away all of their prosperity by clicking his fingers. And so it is here in microcosm. I can take the thing that gives you everything you have, and I can turn it to blood. I can make it useless. And the point of the sign is that our Lord Now, here's the thing with signs and wonders. This is what I'll say, and we could do sermon series, and I plan to next year. But when it comes to signs and wonders, we say, yes, Lord, please demonstrate your power among us in signs and in wonders. Christianity has always been a faith of words and works. Paul says to the Corinthians and the Thessalonians, we came not just with words, but with works. Not just the gospel, but with demonstrations of power in the spirit. All right? So, yes, we, just don't, we don't just want to come up here and preach dead doctrine. We want it to come with power by the Holy Spirit. We want to see manifestations of the spirit in healing and deliverance and all of those things. If you've experienced any of those things, you know that it is, it is an incredible thing to experience, to see something that cannot occur apart from God making it occur. That's A phenomenal experience, and we want all of that. But here is the warning. You can experience firsthand sign after sign after sign after sign and never come to the place where you say, our Lord reigns. You get so drawn in to the experience, to the buzz, to the man or woman who's doing it, that you forsake the Lord who has done it. And that's the truth. You can look around and see this, and it's, it blows. Like I, cannot, I cannot fathom how it's possible, but it happens. You can see these great acts of God and then worship the guy who did it. You see these great acts of God and then pursue the experience and forsake what the sign points to, the fact that our Lord reigns. If you are experiencing signs and wonders of God, and you never come to the place quickly to say, our Lord reigns, then you've missed it. You've misinterpreted it. Jesus says this himself, right? So in in that famous chapter in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him. Here's what happens. Verse 1 to 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You can see sign after sign after sign and even say, this must be from God, and yet not enter the kingdom because you haven't been born again. It's possible to perceive the signs without being saved. And so this is something we need to stress over and over again. Don't be distracted by the signs which are designed to point you to God's lordship. If you see his lordship, if you recognize that he reigns, then you will be born again. You won't miss the point. And as we go through this book, and we're going to see, we haven't seen anything yet. We're going to see majestic demonstrations of power by God and if they lead us to any conclusion apart from falling on our face and saying, our God reigns, then we've missed it. Missed it. So God gives him these signs. They're designed to remind him he is Lord. He is ruling and reigning over all things. He is going with you. Therefore, you can go. You can stop focusing on yourself, on your inadequacies, and just go. Be obedient. But Moses isn't done with his objections, all right? We're only up to number two of three. So verse 10, we've got a classic one here. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. This is a classic, classic excuse given by Christians as to why they shouldn't be the ones to be obedient to God, to step out in faith, to speak the gospel, right? I hear this all of the time. The number one objection to why I should share the gospel with my co-workers is, I don't know, I just don't know enough, I don't know what to say, I don't have the words, I could never stand up the front and do a sermon or And so we take, again, remember, this is a focus on me. That's what's driving this. I've been given this great, awesome mission from God that is cosmic and has eternal consequences, and my response, focus on me. And it leads me to anxiety and despair and to cowardice. So Moses says, I'm I'm not good at speaking, and I never have been, and I'm, I'm slow of speech, and... And, and so often we do this. We allow our past. You can just you can plug in different things here. Maybe maybe you are competent, but you have a past, right? You, I'm, I, I've I've sinned greatly, and I'm not just talking about before I'm a Christian, like the, that sinning that we like talking about. I'm talking about last week, right? With full knowledge and conviction given by the Spirit that I shouldn't be doing this, and I still did it, right? That that <laughs> you know, right? Not just me? Right, okay, so that, that like, the Spirit is saying, please don't do this. This is going to end in you losing joy and losing faith and, and losing assurance. And we're like, yeah, but I just, I just I like the look of that worm on that hook, right? So it's that that we use to dissuade us and discourage us from obeying God's call on our lives. And I love this. I love God's response, right? God's response is great. So, so what would our response be to Moses in modern day? Our response would be, 
probably the gospel of self-esteem, right? We'd be like, nah, Moses, you're awesome. You're, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, my brother. And you, you're, I've heard you speak, and no, it wasn't that good. But I'm sure if you just give it some, like, you are great. We love you, right? Which, like, get his self-esteem up. That'll get him over the line. And God doesn't believe in any of that junk. He doesn't do that. He doesn't draw attention to Moses' adequacy. He draws attention to his own sufficiency. That's what Moses needs to hear. So in verse 11 to 12, the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. He doesn't give him any false assurance in his own adequacy for the role, his own competency. What he's saying to Moses is this, right? Verse 10 and throughout, Moses is calling him the Lord. The Lord just means sovereign, king, ruler. And so what God says to him here in verse 11 to 12 is, you're calling me the Lord, how about acting like it? How about taking your espoused belief and putting it into action. You say I'm the Lord. You say I'm sovereign king. No one can touch me. I can do whatever I please. Let's start doing that. Man, I came across that this past week and it was just conviction. Because I can preach a decent sermon on God's sovereignty. But what happens in that dark night of the soul? In my own heart. Who made man's mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? You're right, Moses. I am the Lord. I made your mouth and I'm going to make it work. I'm going to achieve my plans and purposes through you. It's going to be on my competency that these things are achieved. And my competency is unlimited. Everyone in this room needs to pray that God would close the gap between our espoused theology and our actions. And I think, really, you know that big word sanctification about how the Spirit makes us more like Jesus? I think sanctification is just that. It's over our lives, God closing the gap between what we believe and what we do, how we act, the, the practice of what we say we believe. And as we do that, you know, as, we, as that gap closes, as I think, how about this? I think that gap closes slowly. It's God's purpose, and sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's slower. But I think it's sped up the more that we step out. I really believe that. I think that gap is sped up the more that we step out in faith and obedience. Our trust grows. Our practical theology is solidified. I'm running out of time. All right, here's the third objection. Last objection, verse 13. Finally, the truth comes out. He gets to it eventually. Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Right? I'm out of excuses. Just send someone else. I don't want to do it. It's just flat-out disobedience. Right? I, he came up with some maybe some excuses. Even the one about being slow of speech. Stephen says in... 
in Acts chapter 7 that, that, Mo, that Moses, when he was in Egypt, was powerful in speech, right? So even that, I think he's kind of fudging a bit, all right? So, so he's gone through these excuses. God has answered every one of them. And now he, he gets to the point, I just don't want to do it. Get someone else to do it. It's just flat-out disobedience. And here's the thing. This is the point. I think this focus on self will inevitably lead to disobedience. If all of your focus is on yourself, then you will find excuses for living lives of disobedience. You will. Because you'll be consumed with yourself. So, yeah, I, I deserve it, or, you know, I've earned it, or I just, I just need this. I know, you know, this is about me and my fulfillment. So this is where it leads him. The product of the focus on himself is flat-out disobedience, and God's response is anger and grace. So I won't read through that last bit because I'm out of time, but basically he says to him, I'm really angry at your disobedience, and we need to know that. God is not apathetic when it comes to obedience. He commands it. He doesn't say, it would be really nice if you go to all the nations and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, go. <laughs> this isn't an option. And when we're disobedient, God gets angry, righteously angry, not like peed off, right? Like righteously angry. He is right, you are wrong. But with his anger comes grace. And so he says to Moses, you're angering me right now. You're being disobedient. But let me show my grace. I'm going to give you Aaron. I'm going to give you Aaron. He can speak. You'll be like God to him. That is, you'll provide him with what to say, and he will elucidate your, what, you, what you want to say to Pharaoh. And so he gives him this grace and sends him on his way, and we're going to see next week him returning to Egypt and what happens there in the following week. But here's the big point I want us to take away this morning. A focus on self. Making this faith about me will always result in despair, anxiety, and disobedience. And to the extent that we make it about Jesus, we will grow in confidence and courage and obedience. And so that is why, and it's no accident that our mission as a church to be, is to be people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. It's another way of saying it's not about you. Don't make it about you. All of life is all about Jesus, and that is the catalyst for making us obedient servants of God. I'm going to leave you with a, a, an illustration, all right? And... I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to pray for you. This is so good. My recommendation to you is if you want to grow in faith, if you're a reader, um, you need to read, for every one book that you read that's new, you need to read two or three that are old, written by people who are dead, all right? That's where the good stuff is. You just go through Christian bookstores and knock out Seven out of ten as rubbish, all right? And the three that are left, most of them are by dead people. So here, I'll give you that for free, all right? Here's, here's the point. I want to get to this, this letter written by a, a guy named Adniram Judson. The best names, 
were given to dead guys as well, right? So Edniram Judson, and um, he was a 19th century missionary from America to India and Burma, Ma mainly did his work in Burma, um, and it's now called Myanmar, right? And, uh, and so he had decided to go to this place. He was also really interested in this girl, this girl named Anne. Her name was um, Anne Hasselton. And so he did the right thing that every young man should do, and he spoke to her father and asked for his blessing on the marriage. And in this case, he wrote a letter because they lived uh, quite a way apart. But I want to read you his letter to Anne's father, and I want you to see the kind of stuff that propels men and women like Adniram and Anne to Burma to, to, to spread the gospel, right, into danger and death. The kind of stuff that propels them is not self-esteem. It's not 10 tips for self-actualization. It is making all of life all about Jesus, all right? So just listen to this. I'll try not to cry. All right. The letter to Mr. Hasselton. You might even like to close your eyes, and I'll pray when I'm done. I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and to her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which will resound to her saviour from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. And miracle of miracles, her father consented, and Anne Hasselden married Adniram Judson on February 5th, 1812. They left for India and ultimately Burma that year. She never returned. She died of disease in 1826 after 21 months of dreadful suffering, and their third child died six months later. But when Adniram Judson himself died many years later, they left 100 churches in Burma and 8,000 Burmese believers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just confess now our weakness. We confess to you our cowardice. Lord, objections abound, excuses abound whenever we hear your commandments to live holy lives, to live obedient lives, to make disciples of all nations. Lord, you're calling each one of us, and not just calling, but commanding, and yet we so often 
fail, we so often we so often tune into our own inadequacies, our failures, our sins. So Lord Jesus, let us hear, each one of us, even now, let us hear your voice. I am who I am. And I will be with you. I made man's mouth. I formed you in your mother's womb. I will be with you. I will provide you with what to say. I will encourage you in the mission. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. I am coming. Father, please make us a community of people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus so that out of that centered, that that place of security and peace, we would be able to launch into great works of mission in Jesus' name. Amen.